coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We've got the latest gossip about Apple's brand new file system and why you should care. Then Dan does a deep dive into the wonderful world of FreeBSD jails, ZFS, and just what's going on behind the scenes of his latest server. Plus, some fabulous feedback, a riotous roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to this week's episode of TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on April 18th, 2017, and is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and iX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week, it's our resident backup master, Dan. Welcome to the show, Hello. Dan. Hello. Hello, everybody. Ah, Welcome wonderful to, to have you. Thank you. You too. How are you doing this week? So a lot of the people I knew, they were busy patching their Linux kernels for that UDP exploit that's been in the news. You, I don't think, have that problem. So have you been getting up to anything with all that time you didn't spend updating? I didn't hear anything about the UDP exploit. This is the first time hearing about it. Well, you live in your very privileged FreeBSD world, so you would, yes. you, you, it makes there, sense that you would not. There, there is that. Um, yesterday at lunchtime, I reassembled my MacBook Pro, and it's working. Oh, that's great it's, news. It's on this screen now, yeah. It's very nice to have. It's a 2011-era uh, MacBook Pro with a glossy screen, which cannot be replaced now. You cannot buy oh, really? glossy screens any, anymore. So, so that's it, why I'm glad it to have that. Uh, shipped it off to a guy in California who replaced the graphics chip, I believe, okay. and uh, resoldered some things and got it all working. And I would it, it was well worth the hundred and sixty or hundred and seventy bucks. That seems that yeah, that seems reasonable. I'm very glad to have it back and working, and I assembled it properly. Yes, right, exactly. No, no uh, missing screws or extra screws. Well, there was a missing screw. Oh, okay. One of the motherboard screws. There's supposed to be seven, and I only had six, and I don't know why. I, I suspect that it may not have been put in when the logic board was first replaced when it was about six to eight months old. Oh, okay. Yeah, but who knows, right? It'd be hard to track down. It's just a little... It may be on my desk here somewhere, but I doubt it. And I could just order another one. Huh. But it's just a, a, a two-mil screw... So it, it shouldn't be too hard to find. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a natural segue into our first story this week, uh, talking about Apple's brand new file system. Yes. Now, hands up those of you that didn't know there was a new file system yeah. on your iPhone, I, iPad, Apple Watch, and what was the other platform? Uh, Apple TV. Um, basically, I like the tone of this article. It says, who cares? Who cares if there's a new file system? Well, everyone will care because it's replacing a 30-plus-year-old file system that was first designed for floppy disks and, you know, where where people had a few megabytes, not a few gigabytes. Exactly. Um, This is like – this is similar to going in, in scope from going from FAT32, was that that what it was? Was there a FAT64 and a FAT32? Uh, there was like FAT16 or FAT32. MS-DOS? Uh, trying to think of older stuff. Um, 
I can't think of anything. But but it's a huge leap, and it's really impressive that HFS, that was the old one, was has lasted as long as it has. Um, now, the reason they want to do this is we'll, we'll get into further in in this article because there's a lot of features that this has that the old system didn't have, and it's um, has a lot of very shared similarities with ZFS. But it's not ZFS. I'm pretty sure this is entirely homegrown, but I wouldn't be surprised if I, I know that some of the concepts from ZFS have been shared. Right. They've certainly learned sure. from ZFS and implemented yeah, yeah. some of the same so, things. Same features, not same code. Right. But yeah, it's it's pretty cool what they've done. And at the end, I'll tell you why some of us think that they've done this on uh, mobile devices before attacking, um, sorry, approaching uh, MacBooks and Macs. I mean, it depends on your perspective, right? Yeah. Not everyone might yep. want their file system upgraded. Yep. Yep. But you didn't have a choice with your uh, iOS. Well, that fits, right? You, That's a, your last your last upgrade. You get this. So, have you upgraded yours, your devices? Uh, the same day it came out. Nice. Um, Patch your shit, everyone. That reminds me, a project I work on had their bug database deleted over the week. That's terrible news. It was an old, unpatched version of uh, bug tracking software. Okay. And you didn't need credentials to go in and delete everything, and they just deleted it. Fortunately, they had a backup, and it's back, and they upgraded, and they're all rescued. Did they fix so, it? I mean, could that happen again yeah. at any time? I saw the questions come along, and yeah, the, the exploit has been fixed. Oh, okay. And I saw the people asking, you know, asking the right questions in terms of wanting to find out how it happened before just restoring it. Right. So they found out how it happened, fixed how it happened, and then restored. I don't believe anything was lost. Oh, that's great. Still, though, that's that's unfortunate yeah. news. Yes, yes. So, um, on on to, to this, the point is APFS. So, the approach that this article takes is who cares? Well, they give you a couple of reasons of, of why you care um, or why you should care. Um, in this particular instance, he goes down a, a personal line when he t- talks about um, – his spouse's MacBook Air reportedly failed to back up on the family's uh, airport time capsule. I got one of those right up there, and um, he trusted the MacBook Air would never have we never had any trouble. And then finally, they did have trouble. And the problem was with corrupted files on the laptop's SSD, um, and they were so damaged that even Apple's disk utility refused to repair it. And he tried another app called uh, SuperDuper, which he'd used before, but it didn't really help. So then he spent another 48 hours hunting for wow. and deleting bad files, attempting cloning ac- action operation, then going back to hunt until all the bad files were gone. He admits there might have been a, a smarter way to, to cure the problem, but really he just wanted to get it back to a state that he could use. Now, he talks about this SSD derogation sometimes being referred to as BitRot, which we've talked about before. And it's something um, that modern 
file systems such as APFS might have detected with a clearly labeled error message if it wasn't autocorrected. And this is what modern file systems such as ButterFS and ZFS are supposed to do, actually do do, but they're not yet widely deployed on PCs and other consumer devices. Uh, sorry, he didn't say yet. I said yet. So how does this fit into everyday devices? Well, up until a few weeks ago, these very modern devices were using technology that predates some of our listeners. Um, the file systems were developed in an era of floppy drives and spinning hard drives, and there's neither of those anywhere near these. And file sizes were calculated in kilobytes or megabytes, but now it's not unusual to have a, a gigabyte of data. And I love that image you've got on the screen. Most people would not recognize what that is. That is a floppy drive. And that little notch in the top right corner, I believe that's the right enable notch. It's either the right protect or the right enable. Oh, um, yeah, right, yes. You'll see that there's not a similar notch on the other side because some floppies used to be double-sided. And you used to be able to just pull it out and turn it around and reinsert it. And you'd have data on the other side. And that notch indicated whether or not you could write or not write. I can't remember. Someone will look it up. Yes, exactly. That's the beauty of our wonderful audience. So that's a little app that was made for the Mac. Oops, what, 80, 83, so 27 plus 17, 34 years ago? I'm trying to do math in my head and I'm failing. So that's 1983. Who's born in 83? You know your way. You know how old you are. That's how old that is. So... All of this stuff carries a lot of baggage. There's certain things you can't do. There's certain things you want to do, but you just can't do it in, in this old file system. So I'm sure that this has been underway for a while, and they've planned it exceedingly well. But It's one of, one those of the things hard features, right, where not everyone, especially maybe a lot of the people that they – how they market their devices to care about this implementation deal. You know, so, you know, you have to get it prioritized. You have to get it through uh, – and then actually actually push it out. Yep. Um, I remember hearing from uh, Mark, my coworker Mark, yeah. my colleague both on a, a day job and on FreeBSD, telling me how they plan to upgrade these and how it all gets up, up updated in place. Oh, wow. It's pretty clever how it did. Because That's fascinating. It was HPFS and it had to convert it. <laughs> I didn't write that down. Um, but can you imagine the, the inherent dangers in deploying a new file system? Yes, right? I mean, people, especially, you know, as someone who's recently had a phone stop working, I can tell you how much, you know, how valuable it is, how frustrated you become, right, when your whole little life gadget is is broken. And that's a huge, I can imagine that, right? Like hitting the go button, deploying that update, knowing that it's going to do that, and then just you know, waiting, hoping nothing goes wrong. And then it but, all just worked. But not just your phone. Yeah. A new, new, imagine a new file system being deployed on your laptop or your server. And, okay, it, it's running this file system now, and we're going to run this upgrade process, and it's now all running another file system. Yeah. The only other time I've seen that is uh, you can do that with an EXT4 partition to ButterFS, but you might not want to do that. 
would you risk your data to do that in place? No, I I, I did not ever. Um, it's usually easy enough for me to just reinstall, you know. But yeah, but it must, it seems technically I, very interesting. I would copy. I would copy. I, I wouldn't touch the original. Yeah. I'm not. Uh, it's too risky for me. So, so I want to jump down to the last paragraph of the article, of the original article. Can you put that up on the screen for me, please? Let's. Yes, absolutely. Scroll way down, right there. So, in the middle of the last paragraph, it says, "It'll be interesting to see what happens when APF comes to Mac OS and its complicated burden of past sins." In the meantime, the iOS first release once again speaks to Apple's priorities to its vision of the future. I disagree because of what I heard from Mark. Because Mark was telling me of a conversation that he had with a ZFS developer who was at WWDC. Is that the right? Yeah, WWDC. Yeah. When this was announced, well, sorry, I don't know. He didn't actually say when this was announced. He just said WWDC. And he was talking to an APFS developer backstage. And they went through a whole lot of things about why they were doing this first on Apple and various things that they had to do. And the following is just sort of um, the consensus of of the conversation that Mark and I had. So it has nothing to do with the previously two mentioned people. So they're going to iOS first because they can control it better. There's less side effects. And in particular, the OS is read only to the apps. So you're not going to get anything mucking about with mucking about within the apps, not even users. That makes a lot of sense. Not using. Right. So you can do a lot it, of weird things safer. to your OS X installation. Yep. yep. So it's safer. Um, Apps can only write to their own areas, so there's less chance of cross-corruption. So if something goes wrong, it's just with that app. Yes, yeah, so that makes sense. And they're not writing in someone else's space. And then, um, yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's guaranteed solid state, because this is what it's aimed at, is solid state, right? not rotating disks. Third-party apps have to use Apple's API, so they have much more control over what happens on the way to the disk. There's none of this writing your own libraries That's and going straight That's a really good point, in. yeah. Okay. And what was the other thing? Um, any new behavior with regards to the disk is easily detected and recovered because it's it's all through APIs. And the recovery mechanism with iCloud Backup, assuming you're using iCloud Backup, is much simpler. Just reinstall the app and then restore from backup, whatever. But... On your, that's not as less easy on Macs. And something I thought of is the use of the API means that changing disk structures does not affect the apps. Right, they don't have to know anything about it, right? I love Just keep APIs it exactly the same. Yep. We talked last week or the week before about Postgres functions yeah. and how write don't write SQL in your app. Just talk to a function and let the function do all the the background stuff. That's your API, yeah. which means you can change everything in the background and not worry about your, your apps changing because nobody had to rewrite their apps when these got upgraded. Completely nobody. transparent. That's awesome. It's transparent to the apps, and that's what the beauty of a good API and a good yeah. structure will do for you. And I really like that. Maybe a sign, too, that you're, you, know, you, you hit a good level at the abstractions that you're exposing, how they're implemented, all of that. Yep. 
and I'm a my my honors thesis was a bit on abstraction, so I do like abstraction. Absolutely. Yep. And uh, I wanted to skip over to the Apple File System Wikipedia entry because th- there are several things in there that sound familiar to listeners who have heard us talk before. First, you can do clones. You can do snapshots. That's something that ZFS does and other file systems as well. APFS uses 64-bit inodes. We heard – does ZFS use 64 or does it use 128? I think it used 64. I should know this. Um, Now, it supports – Apple file system natively supports full-disk encryption. Nice. Okay. I mean, that jives a lot with what Apple's been pursuing anyway. Yep. You can have no encryption, you can have single-key encryption, you can have multi-key encryption, which encrypts each, each file with a separate key with metadata encrypted with another one. Wow. Uh, I don't think we're going to run out of, of uh, files because you can have nine quintillion files on a single volume. I don't even know how many that is. That's a 64-bit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, and they, they, they're they using checksums for data integrity nice. for metadata, but interestingly enough, not metadata, not user data, only right. metadata. And did they, and did they say me. that, um, you know, that they were, they felt comfortable enough in the quality of their hard underlying hardware to not do that? I think I said, I heard, I heard a justification towards that. I disagree with the justification because they're not making the SSDs. Yeah, it, it did seem interesting, but I guess... It's a design decision, and I'd yeah. like to know what that was. It'd be fascinating to learn more. Because they had ZFS. Yes, exactly. And they, yeah. Anyway. And that's such a nice feature. Protect your data? Exactly. Thank you very much. <sighs> Who's going to know this bit flipped? Yeah. ZFS, you ever heard the term the shadow nose? I think so, yes. Yeah. Well, ZFS knows too. I mean, I suppose if they, you know, if they, if they think the quality of their things are good, and then also assume that a lot of people use their automated backups and other things, still though, oh, I had to look it up. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. That, that's that's what it's from. <laughs> awesome. So he, so who knows what corrupted bits lurk in the heart of yes, your data? Exactly. Bit rot can strike at any time. Anywhere, anytime. Might Watch be it. striking right now. Yeah, right now. Anything else you'd like to add about this story? Mm, I like it. I'm pleased with it. I mean, it's uh, about time, right? It's great it, to it's see them moving faster. forward. Ooh. It's also faster, I've heard. Uh, like, significantly faster in terms of um, when you're browsing your photos, Yeah, everything on there, it loads. There used to be some lag when you were scrolling through, right. and you'd get you know, partial you know the, the placeholders for the actual image. Yes, but you as don't. it's trying to pull the image, render the thumbnail, show the thumbnail. Yes, I'm told you don't get that as easily anymore because it accesses the data faster. Right, and you can you know now they've actually tailored the design towards the SSD yep. disk and startup. Is, is Ooh, faster too. That's nice too. Yeah. So when you're powering up your phone, it takes less time. Excellent. So 
I don't see any downside yet. Yeah, no, not yet. I haven't heard any like huge stories of data loss or big problems. So basically they're trialing it out on these before they try it out on these. Yeah. And so will you be an early adopter when they make it available on uh, OSX or are you going to wait? Maybe for... not the first day. Yeah. You know, let it may, soak a little. May wait a little while. <laughs> Maybe with that laptop. Yeah, there you go. Practice laptop. For science. For TechStack. Uh, which, let me see here. I had two posts over here. Uh, you can create a time machine. Everyone's familiar with time machines with Apple. I've got two posts here about using FreeBSD as a time capsule for OSX and ironclad time machine backups on FreeBSD. And I believe both of them will implement uh, the AFP, uh, which I don't, Apple File Protocol. I forget what AFP is. Uh, but basically, it allows you to um, create an instance that all your uh, MacBooks can back up to just sitting on your FreeBSD box. Can't run on a jail because the Ava Avahi, if you heard of Avahi, that, that, that's the app that they use. And Mark mentions that I'm aware Apple is moving away from AFP to SMB, but he hasn't investigated what would make this work with Samba instead of Net, net a talk, Net a talk, Net talk. Yeah, I think that's their uh, like their own network protocol thing. Let's yeah. see here. Oh yeah, that's oh, Netatalk is the free open source implementation of AFP. So um, it's the equivalent of SIFS to Samba. That yeah. sort of relationship. I guess so. Yeah, that's what that's what it seems like. Hmm. Interesting. It, it, yes. That's a neat. That's a neat project, though. Uh, that seems like a valuable thing, especially. Oh, seems like there's a lot of overlap too. Like a lot of people who are interested in FreeBSD or develop on FreeBSD have Macs in the house. Um, so, was yep. that just a standalone utility you could install? Uh, this, yes, it's it's basically software that you can install straight from the FreeBSD uh, repos. Even better, and it's just package install two apps, and then there's three configuration files to change and. There might be a service to start, and that would be it. Awesome. Um, yeah, and if you're storing it on ZFS, which most people would be on FreeBSD, there you go. Snapshot it. it every once in a while. Sounds great. Anyway, Excellent. That, that's something I would like to do, but I'm, I won't get to do it for a while. You'll have to let us know when you do. I will. All right, well, with that... I think that brings us to our first sponsor tonight. If you are jealous, we've been talking about this cool new file system. You want the latest and greatest because you are a cool TechSnap listener. My friends, go on over to Ting. What is Ting? Ting is our awesome sponsor who's trying to make mobile make sense. It's, it's no BS mobile service. They're an NVNO of both Sprint and T-Mobile. So you get CDMA and GSM. Yeah, both of them right there. Easy peasy. Whichever phone, you know, whatever phone you have, you can just bring your own device to Ting. It starts at $6 a month. And then you just pay for what you use, you know, minutes, megabytes, messages, whatever you use, some, none, whatever. It's super easy. You just go right over to the rates page. There you'll see a very nice table. Just it spells it right out all the costs, you know, each line, $6, some minutes, some messages, I don't know, data even. Plus, that's like real data. They don't you know, use as much as you want. It comes with tethering built in. They have all the normal features, right? There's no overage charges. There's no penalties. 
no bundling or like extra fees for this is your special tethering data. No, data is just data. Ting gets that. It, it's great. So if you head on over, going over to Ting, go to techsnap.ting.com. That, my friends, that'll get you a $25 service credit. You can use that. It'll probably pay for your first month because, like, look, it's, the, the, the prices are great. Come on. We can admit it. Uh, or let's say you want a shiny new iPhone. You want to try out APFS. Head on over to the shop. They've got a great shop filled with a handsome selection of phones, let's say, uh, that, you know, they'll ship right to you and get SIM cards there if you need one. They have a lot of bargain options if you, you know, you just need a backup phone, you want an extra phone because, I mean, come on, it's $6 a month. You're going to want that. So just pick up, you know, the Alcatel A392, only $63, or kind of nice-looking ZTE Warp Elite, $64. So with that service credit, I mean, that knocks it down to a very reasonable price. Or some of the things I'm most interested in is like this Novatel My5500 right there, $84. And then you can just drag this thing around with you. Maybe you don't want to use your phone or you need to save your phone's battery you have a large number of people that you want to service with this perfect device just pick it up from ting right now so don't get started don't waste your time with these big giant you know get locked in a service contract you have to decide how much data you need each month there's a better way it's techsnap.ting.com all right well that brings us to our main segment i mean it's all the main segment but this is the this is the meaty meaty section you've got You've got some more information for us this week, Dan. I think the viewers are going to be very excited about it. What do you want? To, what do you want to share? Well, over the weekend, I got some. This server that's been sitting around for a while, just waiting for me to have time to do it. And since I sort of got caught up on BSC Can and PG Con stuff, had a couple of hours to reinstall the OS on it. Alan had helped me determine why I couldn't install the OS on the uh, hard drives. But, well, I could install it, but I couldn't boot from it. And the reason I couldn't boot from it is because there were 4K drives, and my main board was just one generation too old to use 4K drives. Ah, uh, yikes. That's terrible. So, so 4K drives usually boot with UEFI, don't they? Yeah, right. Is that, is that how they get around it? My board doesn't have UEFI. It is a Supermicro X8DTU. Um, coincidentally, that's the name of the host. Um, I So I, I resorted just to installing the hard drive on two 128-gigabyte uh, SSDs, Intel SSDs. Um, if you go to dan.langel.org, the latest post, I think, has details about uh, what the hardware looks like. Um, uh, what I did basically is uh, structure. There are 112. It says 112, but that must be 128. I'm guessing. I, I'm not really sure. But they're nice little Intel SSDs. Uh, where does that come in? Intel. 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 Tell. Oh, I don't see them. But the OS is installed on there. Um, I wound up just um, the two. Everything is in mirrors. So the 82 and 83 are the SSDs that I'm booting from. They're in a uh, ZFS mirror. I then created, um, set up 81 and 80, the four and a half terabyte, 
actually five terabyte drives, but they come up as four and a half. I feel cheated. Um, as mirrors again, and there's a Z pool list. Basically, there's two Z pools that I've created. Um, one is called Z root. That's the default. Um, uh, Z pool when you install from FreeBSD, and I called something called main tank for the big one. Um, now I started. The first thing I did was started playing around with these settings. Like the first thing I did was to change a time. A time is usually off on FreeBSD installs. And the reason you turn it off is it's just one more write. And when you do a write, you have to do more another checksum. And when you do more, it slows things down. So not a lot of features really need right. a time anymore. Like I think one of the common ones is, is Mutt usually needs it or some other things that really you know are making use of that yep. access time. But yeah, mm-hmm. 90% of the time, I, I don't care if I just so, read from the file. <clears throat> For Mutt, you can create a separate file system and say, okay, this oh, one has a time turned on. Totally. And, and, th- yeah. and, and that's ZFS easy to do. ZFS makes it really easy to do that. Yep. Uh, one of the other things I did was I ter- changed compression. Uh, oh, yeah. Where is compression? LZ, uh, turned it on. LZ4, I turned that on. Um, and that's about it. That's about all I did to the default box. Now... The next thing I did, and the next thing I did was to install uh, a, a jail manager. Now you don't have to use a jail manager, and there's some people that say, "Why would I use a jail manager when all the commands are right there?" Well, why do we write any software to make it easier? And you know, you could, instead of using libraries and stuff like that, you could just write to the raw device. But no, nobody really yes. does that anymore. They Usually use you want to solve the problem you're trying to solve and not, you know, reinvent the not wheel the, the whole time. Problem. So yeah. what, before you go into that, what's the purpose of this box? Like, what's the, what, what are your design um, specifications and goals? Um, I discussed the design what did you say? Specifications? Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, dis- I, I discussed this box with uh, Josh Petzl, who used to work for IX Systems nice. and is arguably the person around that knows the most about recovering data from Bork to ZFS. Yes, totally. He, he just, he has great stories. So I said, this is what the box is going to do. This is how it's going to work. And he said, okay, we'll, we'll do this. And IX Systems shipped, shipped me out the box, and it's sitting at uh, New York Internet. Oh, uh, awesome. Somewhere in New Jersey, probably just across the river from New York. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the complications is most servers, when you create them, do one thing. They're a database server. They're a web server. They're a mail server. Yeah, like a single purpose. This is, hey, there we go. This is all they're doing. The tuning for that is much more straightforward. A lot of small files, well, you, may, you, you drop your record size down. Right. You're storing backup files, make your record size bigger. That's easy. What's hard, and especially for hobbyists like me and the people listening and you, and right. maybe Chris, but he's not so much a hobbyist yeah. anymore. Is Chris listening? Um, you do a lot of things. You install the OS, then you put a mail server, then you put a web server, then you get this and you get that and you get that. And the box is doing 
everything. Yes, It's exactly. doing so many different things. It's very difficult to tune it. You have to find so, that one perfect configuration that works optimally with everything. And, hey, maybe yep. that doesn't even exist. So you can look up the stuff on the Internet that says, hey, listen, if you're doing this, this is what you want to do. Yeah. But you're also doing this. So you can't do both. Um, now, but what you can do with ZFS is for different uses of the file system, you can set different characteristics on the file system which is used by that application. Case in point, for Postgres, you make the record size rather large or try to match it up with the record size of what Postgres actually writes out. And I think that's 128 meg, 128K, sorry. I'm not sure. I'd have to look up what I've done on other systems. But there's also a caching thing that you can turn off on ZFS so that it doesn't do any caching because uh, Postgres does that caching for you or you want that caching done at the RAM level, not at the not at the ZFS level. Um, Al- Alan knows the, this part much better than I do. I just ask him and then do it and forget it, which is unfortunate. Um, now, what this box is going to do, it's going to be the replacement for the Freshports website. Uh, in short, all that's on Freshports is a big-ass Postgres database and a web server and mail. That's all there is, basically. Um, so... I will be creating a jail for Postgres, uh, a jail for probably Nginx. It's now running Apache, but I think I'm going to move to Nginx. And I thought about putting the mail in its own jail too, but I'm not sure if I'm going to do that now or not. I may still. I don't know. So the first step was installing a jail manager. And the jail manager that I chose, um, I've used – there's two main ones. Out. There are there are a couple of others, but the two main ones are EasyJail, which has a lot of use at the moment, and IOCage. EasyJail, I believe, came first, then IOCage. IOCage was written as a shell script, and then it got withdrawn and rewritten and recently released as a Python script. Right. I was going to say, I think I just, just heard about that. So which one did you choose? I went with PYIO Cage. I installed that, uh, I think, over the weekend. And it's good. It's slightly different from from the old one. Right. But most of the commands are the same, and it will upgrade your old existing IO Cage jails for you. Oh, really? Yeah. That's handy. It'll it'll convert them to, to, to use the new layout it doesn't rewrite anything on disk it, the old one uses um, more zfs file systems than the the new one does oh, okay. but it doesn't rewrite those you still have those left but it will then work with the new io cage nice. so the upgrade path is easy yeah definitely huh. so um when i went to install it it's just package install PYIO cage. And the first thing you do is you say IO cage 
use this ZFS Z pool. So in my case, I said IO cage activate. Ooh, that's wrong. Main tank. Just correcting my notes. So I said IO cage activate main tank, and then it activates itself on there. And really what it's doing is creating a couple of file systems for use later. And then you say IO cage fetch, and it goes, and for me, it automatically fetched 9.3 release, 10.1, 10.2, 10.3, and 11. Now, why it fetched all those and where it got it from, I don't know. It, sorry, it didn't actually fetch them. It just created all these images for it, not not full images. And it does note that 9.3, 10.1, and 10.2 are end of life, but it gets them there. So... Then I said, okay, uh, IO cage create tag equals PG01. So this is for Postgres01. That'll be the name of the jail. Gave it an IP address. And the way you specify the IP address in a dynamic situation, I'll explain what that is after. You just say equals quote LO1 pipe the IP address. Close quote. So everyone has an LO0. I created an LO1, and it's just a, a cloned um, NIC. It, it's not actually a physical NIC, it's a logical NIC. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it just sits there, and I'm assigning addre- addresses in the range of 127.1.0. something. And then that way you, you communicate between. Yep. So what happens is is that things on the box, all the jails communicate through LO2, LO1. Um, one of the interesting things about jails is they all communicate by default through LO0. Okay. So even though a jail may have an IP address of 1010, 10.0.0.1 and 10.0.0.2, they don't communicate over those IP addresses. They communicate over LO2. One LO zero. So if you're trying to do any sort of interesting firewall rules, you got to do it on LO zero between the jails or whatever IP addresses they wind up communicating on. It's something. It's an interesting trap if you think that's what they're doing. Right. Something to be aware of as you're building yes. your architecture. Yes. So and then I said minus our eleven point zero release. So what does IO cage do? It says hey. We don't have 11.0 release here. Let's go and fetch it. So it fetched it. And it's interesting. It was fetching them at 11.9 megabits per second. Hey. I don't believe that. Yeah, that seems very fast. I don't believe that. I'd I'd believe the 84.9 kbits per second. Yes. But not the 11.9. Well, hopefully in either case it was a nice fast download. Well, hold on. I have a 75 megabyte line 75 up 75 down right. so that's not cl- so then it did all these things blah 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 and bang there I've got the gel so the next step was I didn't run that gel the next step was to create the nginx one gel and so I did the same command io cage create tag equals nginx01 IP4 underscore ADDR equals, quote, double quote, LO1 pipe 
127.1.0.503, sorry, not 503, 53, 24, quote, dash minus R11.0 release. And that took only about less than a second. Nice. The, fir- the first one took minutes because it was fetching and downloading. The second one was instantaneous. Now, the reason why that is, is that when you create a new jail, it bases it by default on a template jail that already exists. In this case, it's the 11 point, uh, let me find it here in this list. Uh, yes, main tank IO cage releases 11.0. And then there's main tank IO cage templates. So basically, it cloned the file system and put it over there. And yeah, that's, cloning, one of my, that's like an awesome power of, of jails and ZFS together. Yep. It's a sweet and it's spot. instantaneous. Yeah, like, right? It, it, it's, it's the it's same idea as doing a snapshot. Yeah. That's it, so cool. It, it's not very different to doing a snapshot. Yeah, right, exactly. And it's fast. So I had been reading recently, someone seemed to make a good argument for not cloning file systems and using them. And I think his issue was that, you know, after a while, if you're deleting stuff from the original and adding stuff to to the old one, there's all this cruft that winds up being on disk that you cannot delete. But that's a special use case. In this case, I'm not going to be changing the original system. Right. It just sits there. I think that's a common use pattern, right? You have like your golden master. Hey, this mm-hmm. is my base that I want to work with. Yes. You can yes. rebuild that later if you need to, and then mm-hmm. update from there. And I clarified this today with Brandon, the guy that writes IOCage. I said, if I update my template today, that only affects new jails. And he said, yes, right. because you're modifying the original file system and the other clones reference a point in time, a snapshot, a previous snapshot. Yes. Uh, that's nice. So you can be sure you so, can start prepping for future things and know that you're not, you're not going to harm whatever you're running right now. Exactly. Exactly. Which would make it really easy for you. You know, you can then then bring the new ones online, maybe transition the service over or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, and that's as far as I got that night, just that far. And thus endeth the lesson for today. We'll have to come back to this after I've done a bit more work. But this is enough to wet the taste buds of the people that are listening. Yeah, no, um... I think that's interesting. I don't know if you want to do. I think most people probably know, but I don't know if you want to do a quick rundown of like of jails or the the base principles. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. I did post some things over here, didn't I? Yes. So um, there's a link here. FreeBSD jails. Read that. Get started with that. Um, the one beautiful thing in here is it explains it in terms of. The very basic bits, and you can go through and look at the terms related to jails, you know, creating and controlling. These are your raw commands. Read through all of this, even though you may never, ever need to do it. Read through it all. Read through all of Chapter 14. Just because one day, sometime in the future, you'll say, this isn't right. 
something's wrong. Oh, yeah, I read about that. Where did I read about that? And then you'll want this. Um, basically, um, now I had a very good explanation here. Let me just find what I was talking about. The difference between a jail and a VM is quite significant. A jail is an imperfect virtual machine. And the reason why they're satisfied that it's imperfect is because it gives you better security and more uh, dependent security and robustness. And people come along and they say, hey, but jails aren't virtual machines. And they said, yes, isn't that great? Because people seem to want virtual machines, but you don't always need virtual machines for the things that you're doing. And one of the beauties of using a jail on FreeBSD is that everything is isolated. Um, everything in a jail can see only the jail. By default, the only thing it can see is what's in that jail. In order for you to give it access to anything else outside the jail, say a, a tape drive, which is what I do, I give a jail access to a tape drive, you have to do some pretty specific steps to go through and allow that jail to see that tape drive. And that's by design. You don't want anyone getting out of the jail. And once we get into uh, Paul Henning Kemp's description of how jails came about and the problem they were trying to solve, you'll see exactly why that is the case. Um, now, what else did I see here? So jails are like little virtual machines, jails, running inside a bigger machine, which we refer to as a jail host. And you as a sysadmin on the jail host can see all the jails. You can see all the processes running in each jail. You can say, show me all the processes running in jail with ID 1. And bang, there's a list of them. Show me all the processes running in jail 2. You can see them all. You can go in there. You can kill them. When you're in that jail, you don't know you're in a jail. You don't know that you can be watched. If you're really clever... You can go and look at one CTL, and it'll tell you whether or not in a jail. But most bad actors don't even know to look at that or look at it to find out. And to be honest, they don't care. They just want to take over the, over the box and use it for something and be done with it. But because it's a host and a jail, you can see what's going on. You can take control of it. Nobody knows they're being monitored because they can't see you. Uh, often when you get onto a box, one of the, not me, but stories I've heard. Yeah, never me. Never me. Once you get onto the box, the first thing you do is is run who or W to find out, is there anyone else in the box? Totally. Um, what was that book? I read it. It was one of the original books on uh, computer forensics. It was talking about a guy whose computer was being broken into somewhere out in California. Oh, it's uh, now, now a classic Cuckoo's book. Egg, right? I think that's what it's called. The Cuckoo's Egg. That's the book. Yes. yes. He was watching this guy do stuff. And he noticed that one of the first things the guy did was see who was logged on. And if someone else was logged on, he would log out right away. But So, yeah, people do do that. As a as now, a side note, audience, you should definitely check out that book. Cliff Stoll is a fascinating guy. He uh, has has some has like a blog and his own website and sells Klein bottles over the internet. And it's just generally an interesting character. 
It's a very good book. It is. I I enjoyed reading it from cover to cover. Buy it, read it. Exactly. Um, what was the last thing I wanted to say about this before we went on to Paul's? Oh yeah. The very simple idea of creating a jail. This is a very condensed version. Is you create a directory, you install FreeBSD into it, you CD. Well, you don't have to CD into that directory, but imagine CDing into it and then never being able to CD out of it. That's what a ch root is. Once you're in, you don't get out. There's just no way for you to get out once you're in there. Um, that's a simplification, and it's not strictly true. And people are going to write in to say, "Oh, Dan, but you got that wrong." But this is a generalization introducing people to jails. So, some of the fascinating history about jails. I just absolutely love this. Uh, can you load up the third link down, the origins of FreeBSD jail and why imperfect virtualization is good? That's a phk. There we now, are. If you've never heard of Paul Henningkamp, you really should read up on this lad. He's done a lot of fascinating stuff on very wide platforms. He's well known for in a lot of areas more than just FreeBSD. He's known. He's the author author of Varnish. He does a lot of stuff with uh, Network Time Protocol, and anyway, he's a good guy. So, if you scroll down to the development of jails, it's about halfway down. So. Basically, jails came about because he had different – Derek had different customers in his web hotel. Web hotel was probably just uh, uh, the term at that time. So all these customers needed different versions of Apache, MySQL, Perl, etc. And this forced them to run a lot of machines, most of which were, were idle. And so they talked about this. And Paul realized that chroot could just be extended to create lightweight virtual machines. And so he said, hey, Derek, why don't you fund this development? And so he did. And the development consisted of five parts. Making sure you don't escape the chroot jail. Restricting process visibility so that when you're in this jail, you don't see any of the processes in the other jails. Deciding root can and cannot do in a jail, teaching certain device, dri device drivers about jails, and giving each jail its own IP address. And what's interesting is that Paul says the third one, deciding what root can and cannot do, was the most tedious, since every single place in the kernel in the kernel where the code said "Are you super user?" had to be located and thought about. Yes, but that's used, hard. Yeah. And he used the chance to normalize all these checks to the same function call, Ooh. an investment which made life easier for other projects later on. Yes, that sounds like so a nice So every time you check to see if you're root, it calls this function. That's your API. Yeah. Hey, I like that a lot. So, Derek, the key here is that he sent the patches to Derek, and the agreement was that Derek had exclusive use for one year of all this code. Oh, interesting. Before Paul Henningkamp committed it to the FreeBSD tree in April 1999. 
that's kind of unusual. I feel like I don't hear that sort of thing that often, but I mean, hey, it got I, the work funded, so that's great. Yep, yep. And thank you, Derek. Yeah, thank you that's for, awesome. A, valu- think, a valuable contribution. I wonder where he is today. A lot of people owe him a lot of thanks. Yeah, I mean, jails are immensely useful. As well as Paul. So there was a, a paper that was ah, co-written yes. Here with we are. Robert Watson. We've talked about Robert last week. And so, yeah, this is pretty cool. So this actually predates – oh, no, this is almost the same time as I started getting involved with FreeBSD. I got involved in 1998, I believe. But I didn't hear about jails for a little while longer. But, wow, I really like them. You should also read the section here of, of what jails developed and uh, their creativity and their potential. And really look down here and have a look. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's, it's amazingly prescient how, you know, this concept is clearly important. Our whole industry now is, you know, with the, the containerization fad and Docker and all of that. Clearly, there's a lot to these ideas. And mm-hmm. jails have been have existed and been rock solid now for a long time. And it's, it's really neat to see this, like the window into how it happened, why it happened, the architecture decisions. And I mean, mm-hmm. I think that paper is great to read too. Like it's very approachable to read. I'll also say, uh, Brian Cantrell did an, a papers. We love talk about both jails and Solaris zone. So that's worth checking out as well. It's uh, he's always yes. worth listening to. Yes. I remember that one. Yeah. It's really interesting. Even if you're, you know, you're not that familiar with it. He's a, uh, He's a great evangelist for these kinds He's of technologies. A character. Yeah, exactly. Huh, awesome. Uh, any other anything else you'd like to say about jails, your use of them, or your uh, plans for this box? I want to get this box up and running as soon as I can, but again, it, it, it's a time issue. Um, I've got a whole bunch of jails running in this rack. Uh, I've got two or three servers out there that are both running jails. Uh, right now, I only have two boxes out in the world that are not that are full boxes and are not running jails. One is a Freshport server, and the other one is a is an old i three eight six, which ZFS does not run well on, and therefore I have no jails. You can do jails with UFS, but they're well suited to ZFS. Yeah, that makes sense. I think another one like um, Ubuntu seventeen oh or seventeen ten. Oh, four. That's the one. Yes, obviously. Uh, just came out. With that, they have mm-hmm. their LXD container system, which I think seems to be inspired for a, a lot. Like, they're trying to do this. They call it the container lighter visor or anything. But it, it, it very much reminds me of Jails. A lot of the workflows are similar. They have started working on uh, ZFS integration as well, so it plays very nicely. Yes. Do exactly the same kind of, you know, <laughs> copy. And so so it's really funny to see. It's, it's not as polished yet, and it does come with, like, its own kind of manager thing built in uh and isn't i don't think even as popular as jails uh but it's interesting to see the development kind of sharing so much we'll have to talk more about that later, I know, perhaps i know you can get docker on freebsg now that uses jails yes uh in fact our next sponsor tonight they have a blog post about this you can head on over to ihexsystems.com on their blog you'll see Docker done right. This is a post from uh, 2015, but they talk about, you know, the advantages, why people want to use Docker, as well as, hey, it turns out there's already this great file system and container technology that we can just piggyback on. But 
so that's just one of the reasons. You should also just go check out iXSystems.com slash TechSnap because they're one of our very favorite sponsors. Their blog has a ton of great stuff really all the time. Uh, it's one of my pl- favorite places to see what's up with the industry, right? So here, they'll tell you I mean, about their awesome support, which is totally true. They're also the people who make FreeNAS. Uh, so if, you, if you're a fan of that kind of storage technology, that's iX Systems Game. They're the hardware provider that... that you know, they have white glove service. They have custom machines. They've got a, you know, an awesome, awesome staff of sales engineers ready to hook you up with the latest and greatest Intel processors to fit whatever need. You heard Dan talking about it earlier in the show, right? The kind of knowledge that they have, the the, the crafting they're able to do to make sure that you get the, the server that works for you the first time. And then, you know, if you have any problems, which you probably won't, but if you do, they have that they have that white glove support so that you know your problem's going to get taken care of quickly. They'll ship you a replacement. Whatever, you know, whatever needs to happen is going to happen. IX, they're just, they're, they're just professional. They've been doing this a long time. They know the open source industry. They know the best practices. They know, you know, all the workloads that you're likely to have been. They, they've done everything from, you know, they make the FreeNAS, which is very popular as a home or small office file server. But they also make giant enterprise-level systems, right? If you, I mean, if you go over to their main page, iXSystems.com slash techsnap, you'll see some of the awesome stuff they do. You know, they work with Sony and Disney and Yelp and Evernote. And these are, you know, these are big names with big, huge storage problems, things like the TrueNAS or the TrueRack. And that's why they trust iX Systems. They trust, you know, the technologies that iX Systems develops and puts their trust in, things like OpenZFS and FreeBSD, things we love and talk about here on the TechSnap program all the time. And that's why we think they're such a great sponsor, why we think you should definitely head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Check it out. They have an awesome white paper about, you know, the building systems and hardware for open source software. They have a ton of resources. Go play with FreeNAS. You know, if you are looking for, you want to start playing with, with jails, FreeNAS makes it really easy to, to do that. Uh, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. It's great. You'll have a lot of fun. Get yourself a brand new server today. You'll be very happy that you did. Anything else you'd what like a, to add there? What a great segue. Yeah, right? You know it. A- anything you'd like to say also about Jails or uh, ZFS? Use them. I think they're the best things since FreeBSD. All right, that brings us to this week's feedback. What do we have in the mailbag this week, Dan? It's like a, a whole lot, lot of stuff. stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. Awesome. Not all the not all of it is in here because some of it was just providing suggestions or uh-huh. it was very complex. Right. We still appreciate it all the same and we, we share the highlights with you guys. We do. We do. Okay, so first up this week we've got a letter from Thomas. And Thomas writing writing to us about Bacula, knowing that Dan is the Bacula wizard that he is, he writes I wrote in a while ago asking about changing the size of my volumes in Bacula, but are stored as files on hard drives. I've done some rough calculations, and since we don't have the money to buy too many new drives, it would take around six years, not considering size growth, before all 50 gigabytes of volumes would be converted to 5 gig volumes via automatic recycling due to retention time and lack of space. So if there's a way I could force a conversion in some way, I would love that. I do have some space to work with, and a few tapes I could use as temporary storage if that would help to change it. Also, I'd love to know where I could read about the different backup types. Currently, we are only using full and ink, but would love to know more about the others as well. Thanks again. Okay. 
let's start here with full and ink. Yes. A full backup is everything. You give it a list and it backs up all that stuff. It's not necessarily the whole drive, but it's all the files that you specify in the list of files to be backed up. And they can be directories or they can be files. Now, a differential backup is everything that has changed since the last full backup. So that's not the last backup, the last full backup. So if you did a incremental, if you did a full on Sunday, the first Sunday of the month, and differentials on all the other Sundays of the month, then those differentials would be relative to the first full. Okay? So that means that if you were to restore on the third Monday, you would start with the full backup from the first Sunday and the differential which was taken on the previous Sunday. So basically, each differential you take renders the previous differential superfluous. Now, an incremental, an incremental backs up all the files since the last backup. So you run an incremental on Monday, it's relative to the differential you took on Sunday or the or the fall. If you run it on Tuesday, it's relative to the incremental that was run yesterday. So in effect, if you were to need to restore something on Saturday, you would have a whole bunch of... I just had doubt in my mind. Our incre incrementals are relative to the last backup. Yes, they have to be. So basically, if you were to do a restoration on Saturday, you would take the full from the Sunday, the differential, if there was one, from the next, from the most recent Sunday, and then all the incrementals from Monday through Friday, and that would get you back to what you had on Friday, apart from any files you might have deleted, which won't be in there unless you're doing accurate backups, which is a different type of backup altogether. What an accurate backup does is it, the, it sends a list of files to the file daemon on the client and says, these are the files that I already have now and that I know where to be backed up. What's your list look like? And so the, the file daemon says, oh, this file doesn't exist anymore. Remove it from your, from your list. Now, you can still get that backed up file because it hasn't been removed from the backups. It just means that the backup that you're taking now, when you go to restore it, that deleted file won't get restored. Why, why, did, why do deleted files get restored? Because that's what incrementals, fulls, and differentials do. They don't take any notice of a file that's been deleted. It restores it because it was part of the full. It gets restored on that day. And if you deleted it the next day, it doesn't show up in any of the other backups. But it still gets restored because it was part of the full. And that, I call it an edge case. That edge case is dealt with by accurate backups. Now, there's another backup type called virtual backups, which means that with every backup, it constructs a new full backup which means that if you need to go and do a restore, 
you only have one restore to deal with. Uh, sorry, one backup to deal with, which is the most recent one, and instead of going for all the incrementals and the differential and the full. So those are the different backup types. Now, to force your conversion, use a copy job. I didn't think there was a way to do this until I thought about it later on this afternoon. You can do a copy job in Bacula, which copies the file from one pool to another. What I would do is I would create a new pool which needs 50, 5 gig volumes and then copy it, copy the job from the old pool to the new pool, and the new pool will have only 5 gig uh, drives, 5 gig volumes. And when you're confident that it's over there, you can delete the old job. Uh, how do you do that? Are you, there's an SQL uh, statement you can construct on the copy job. And there's a link to that at the bottom of the show notes. But yeah, you can do this. Nice. And let that us, like let us know how it. it goes. Let us know how it goes. And a copy job seems like that. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes you, sense. Uh, there's a migration job or a copy job, but I would feel safer doing a copy job right. if you have enough space. I wouldn't do a, a migrate job. Well, you need twice the space anyway. Yeah. Because it does the, the copy, then it goes back and deletes. I would feel more comfortable doing the delete manually. Yeah, no, I think, I think I agree. And if you get really paranoid, copy it to tape, then copy it to disk, because then you, you, you have, have a copy on right tape there. anyway. Yes. Excellent. All right, well, uh, thank you for writing to us, and uh, yeah, let us know how it goes, Thomas. Next up, we've got a letter from David. David writes, when to choose my sequel over Postgres? Dear Dan and Wes, although I've been a Postgres fan for a long time, I have not used any other open source databases for some time, but as any good engineer should do when making choices, could you please list some of the arguments in favor of the alternative, in this case, my SQL? Uh, there has to be at least a few things if so many people go with it, i.e. the Uber engineering blog has an entry why they switched back, from, you know, ba- switched back to my sequel from Postgres, but I'm sure there could be less complicated reasons. Thanks for the show. Uber was about mo- this? Uber was mostly wrong. Yeah, it seemed like um, it seemed like they were uh, used had a very uncommon and strange configuration in how they were using it. Uh, it. It also appeared they were only using one MySQL server when it's fairly easy to to split that up. Um, I suggest people that are interested in why most Postgres people think Uber was wrong, not wrong for switching, but wrong at least. Maybe they were wrong for switching, but at least their conclusions were wrong. The conclusions and the stated reasons for why they wanted to move are not technically sound. I urge you to Google for why Uber was mostly wrong. There is a talk by Christoph Pettis uh, of PostgreSQL experts. Have a look at his slides. You may be able to find it online. He's given a couple of talks on it. Um, I found it uh, PG Nordic. We'll, we'll add it to the show notes. But Uber was wrong, and I thought they were wrong when they did it at the time. So don't go with the reasons that other people give for going. Read their reasons and see if they make sense to your specific use case. Um, I don't know what you're using it for. 
Um, now, one time you you actually mentioned why I changed. Um, I liked it. It was more like a uh, a professional database, which I'd been used to, and that's why I still like it, and that's the reason I recommend other people go for it. Um, if you really want to get into that, look at all the... Um, there's many things you can find when you go and Google MySQL versus Postgres. But like everything, it winds up being a religious choice. Yes. And people really like one over the other for their own specific reasons. It's like me saying, don't use this operating system because instead I like to say, use this operating system because right. so. I prefer to advocate rather than what's what's the opposite of advocate? Bad mouth. <laughs> yes, disparage so, perhaps. Yeah, disparage. Oh. So don't don't speak ill of others. Speak well of your choices. Yeah, right. I mean, that seems like how you would make a decision too, right? Like, okay, well, what features do we need? What features are important to us? What things, you know, what constraints on our architecture do we have? I think there's also a component that not everyone does a good job as good of a job as David does. So a lot of times, choices are end up making because. You know, that's what you know how to scale and deploy. That's what you already, you've already used. You have other dependencies and maybe you're re, you know, mm -hmm. adding more logical databases. Uh, yes. It's, co it's and, a complex issue. And what you've already used is a big indicator of what you're going to use in the future. <laughs> right, yes, but exactly. But I, I, ha I have made some big choices. Like I changed from Sudmail to Postfix. I changed from MySQL to Postgres. Um, I can think of... I can't think of any other major changes like that. I went from UFS to ZFS, but that's mostly transparent. Can't think of anything else. Yeah, okay. Well then, on to our next piece of feedback. Peter writes in about Bacula. I just wanted to write in and say thank you for talking about Bacula in depth and about the tape backup system. I have a free NAS with a RAID Z going well for many years, but all you guys keep on repeating, one copy of a backup is not really a backup. Hey, that's right, Peter. I found a Quantum Supercharger LTO4 system for 200 pounds. Wow, yeah, I know. The LTO drive on its own costs that much. I just had to buy a SAS card, cable, and five tapes coming in under 300 pounds. I just want to do simple one-time non-incremental backups of my most important data across as many tapes as I can, store some tapes off-site, and sleep easy in the region of like 700 gigabytes. I'm planning on putting the SAS card into my existing FreeNAS rig and try to set up Bacula on FreeNAS 910. Hmm. Is that a good idea? Do I need, I need a jail, correct? Or, or should I upgrade to Corel and create a VM specifically for the backup? If a VM is better, then is there a Bacula OS? Thanks for the great show, and thanks for keeping us motivated. Thank you, Peter. No, don't upgrade to Corel. It's been reg regu re relegated, I believe. Relegated, that's the word. I knew regulated wasn't the right word. It's been relegated to technology preview status. I think that, did we talk about that last week? I don't know if it happened last week or the week before, but, it, so. but it's recent. Um, let, let me find the link. But ba basically, um, uh, that release of FreeNAS is no longer considered uh, bleeding edge. And, well, it is bleeding edge. Don't don't use it. Um, Chris Moore will be on BSD Now tomorrow uh, talking about this. 
and yeah, um, he'll explain some of the reasons wh- why they chose to do this. And just bear with me. Wes, talk about something while I look this up, please. Yeah, well, so it sounds like, you know, they had the, the a project lead leave. Uh, they, they saw some users weren't happy or didn't, you know, didn't feel like it was going to work. There were some big changes in Corral uh, from the previous stable code base. And so while there's lots of nice new features that people want, it seems like it felt like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really what the community wanted or at least the majority of the community. And maybe it made more sense to, you know, use this yep. as a case study, take the good features that we do want that are worth it, and then keep shining up the, you know, the 910 code base. Yeah, I, I read something about it where there was a new project started and the existing team kept working on that. And the new release was the new code, but the, the old code is still being developed. And Chris will talk, uh, Chris will be on um, 2 Eastern, 6 p.m. UTC tomorrow on BSD Now with more info about what is going on. But no, don't, don't go to Corral. And so back to answering his question. Um, Yes, that's a very good score. I've got an LTO4 behind me. It's not a quantum supercharger, but it's an LTO4. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure this is a tape library. I'm not, not sure how many tapes he has. He, he bought five tapes. So yeah, you've got the SAS card. Try putting the SAS card in your box. See, see if it works. I do know that, that FreeNAS has a Bacula plugin, but that's a Bacula plugin for running as... SD is a storage daemon. I don't know where you would run your, your Bacula director. I don't know if you have another box. Yes, you may want to run it in a jail. Um, the VM isn't better. Uh, there is no Bacula OS. Um, basically, you would run it on the FreeNAS box in a jail, I think. I'm not familiar enough with, with FreeNAS jails to answer that. But if you get onto the FreeNAS communities and say, I have this, I want to do this, they will tell you the best way to do it with um, FreeNAS's setup. If you have another box, I would put it over there because you also need a database server, which could be MySQL, but I suggest Postgres. And I don't know if you want to put that on your FreeNAS box. If you have another box, I would create a jail on there a FreeBSD jail and do it all in there. That's what I'd recommend. No, I think I think that makes sense. Uh, if anyone's watching this episode and they're like, "Oh, Bacula, that sounds cool," and they would like to learn more, then just go check out our previous episode, TechSnap three eleven. Mm-hmm. Check yo check some. Uh, there, Dan does an awesome deep dive into Bacula. He'll store, you know, explain what. Uh, a storage director is and, and how all of the wonderful features and different backup strategies work. Thank you. Okay, up next, let's see here. We have got a letter from Danny. Danny writes about questions for file sharing in a diverse environment. I think we all have some of those in our life, and it can be a challenge. I'm really enjoying the new format with deep dives on tech topics. I'm looking at the best way of sharing files from a NAS to Windows and Linux slash Unix clients. The same share would be used by multiple clients, mainly to read files, but sometimes to write as well. Should the shares be SIFs, SMP, NFS, a combination, meaning NFS for Linux slash Unix, SIFs slash Samba for Windows? Is there a best practice to follow? Any caveats? I'm using FreeNAS 910 at the moment, but I'm looking for a more general overview of best practices and guidelines. Keep up the great work. Hey, thank you, Danny. 
What do you think about this, Dan? Have you do you do much? Uh, you know, do you, do you have shares for your uh, your other platform devices on your network? They're there, but I don't. I hardly ever use them. Um, I've got a Samba instance installed, yeah. but I looked a few weeks ago, and I've got files in there from two thousand, the early two thousand, like two thousand two, two thousand three, and most of it I don't know. Uh, I've got copies of old photographs and stuff like that sitting there, but I hardly ever use them. I used to use. Back in the day, it was a way for copying files between computers, um, like copy it to there, then copy it to the other computer. But nowadays, I'm not doing much of that at all because everything's network. I can just SCP it. But back then, it was Windows laptops, and it was, no, yeah. didn't do that. Yeah, you know, I think I would go with, with Samba personally, Um you know, NFS Windows does have NFS support. Uh, I think in some some versions you have to install it extra. Um, but I think you know if you really need, if you're more familiar with NFS, if you know there are specific features that you want, then that that gets a fine option. But I think Samba is usually a little bit easier to get rolling, to get permissions right, to get it play to play well with with a Windows client, um, especially if maybe you have Windows users out there who are more familiar with with you know mounting a Samba share or other things. You know, it's mostly what I I see. Uh, I think then, like they have, you know, the the information you will be able to find about you know making it work. Uh, I think it's a little easier to translate between you know Windows and versus like trying to tune NFS settings between the Unix versions and the Windows version. And you could do a combination, but unless there's a reason that you need a combination, I think that's just added some added complexity that won't get you very much. At work, we do a lot of NFS, but everything, everyone's logged into Unix there. Yes, right. And you can share that from the desktop, but yeah, and like it totally, you know, it'll totally work. Um, Varen Nuda in our IRC has makes some good points that you know, Samba is a little more universal. Like Android um, can find you can just apps that will use find Samba shares on Android and other things, so it works nicely. I know you know it plays well. With, with Max plays plays nicely with Windows and, and most clients. So I would say go Samba. Let us know if you run into any, you know, interesting configuration problems or performance bottlenecks or any other, you know, let us know how your deployment goes, what choice you end up making. Um, as far as best practices to follow, you know, I think you'll, it depends on what, what thing you pick. And then there are some, you know, you can find maybe some tuning guidelines or, you know, recommended configurations. Um, the ArchWiki has some stuff. DigitalOcean has some mm. um, has some Samba mm. documents as well. So, let us know what works for you, and we'll be uh, interested to hear how it works out. Okay, next up, we've got a letter from Robert. He's writing about pin entry pad randomization. Just a quick note here, guys. You talked about the pin pad being randomized for entering pin to unlock the phone as a fix to avoid the sensors being used to figure out what your pin. Yes, yeah, so this is something we talked about last week on episode three fourteen. Uh, where just by using onboard sensors on a phone, you could and then you could then infer which pin bre- uh, buttons were being pressed. So Dan proposed, you know, we started talking about like, hey, could you randomize the pin? Uh, so he says, I thought you might like to know that my bank does that. ING Direct in Australia. When logging to my internet banking, I must use my mouse to enter the pin to prevent keyboard loggers. And the number buttons I'm clicking on are randomized, so a mouse logger can't be used to find my pin. Okay, just keeping it short, always an interesting show. Thank you for your work. Hey, thank you, Robert. Yeah, that is interesting. That is good to know. Um, 
that's a nice example of maybe some good security we're seeing here, uh, which normally on this program, we end up talking about exactly the opposite, especially when it comes to large financial institutions or otherwise. Yep. I've seen that uh, once for Bank of New Zealand, having to enter that in like like that. And they also sent me a little um, card that has numbers on it, like horizontal and vertical. And they give you the two numbers, read off the number that it matches. That's a good system. Yeah. Interesting. It's like it's it's a cheap two-factor authentication, I think. Yes, exactly. Uh, analog two-factor, if you will. I like that. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I like the, the, the yeah. I do like that. Ing Direct does that. That's pretty cool. Good to know. Thank you for letting us know, Robert. If anyone else uh, has interesting stories about security wins or security failures, uh, please do write in, and we will cover it right here. That brings us to our final piece of feedback this week. Ah, okay, so it looks like this is from one of our IRC regulars, Architect. Good time of day. Loving Dan and Wes's take on the TechSnap program, especially the deep dives. While it was certainly more than I ever thought I wanted to know about a backup program, it was very entertaining to hear Dan go over the various aspects of Bacula. Additionally, as someone learning how to write C code that actually does something useful, currently about halfway through KNR, neat, that's awesome. It was great to get a better understanding of what exactly these Valgrind messages mean. I screwed up, lol. I've been using FreeBSD as well as DragonflyBSD more and more prominently in my work, and I'm beginning to look into using jails to help isolate processes. Hopefully getting to the point of having web servers connect to database servers in separate jails, and allowing each host to have its own jail and similar separations, so the systems can be made more modular, and to prevent errors in one program from being able to trash other data, as well as containing any threats that may pop up. I'd love it if Dan could cover jails and jail networking in a future deep dive, perhaps not so much the creation of a jail, but how to configure them to accomplish specific tasks, such as being an isolated web server. So if you have a vulnerability in Apache or Nginx, you don't risk compromising the base system. Again, loving the new show format, I wasn't sure there'd be a way to replace Chris and Alan. Hey, we weren't either, but you guys have done a fantastic job of taking over. Ah, thank you. That means a lot. Thank you very much for writing in, Architect. So, we've done a little bit of jail stuff, but uh, what do you think? Is there more there to cover that you'd like? Maybe we can uh, throw that into uh, a future show? Well, we we covered it a little bit there and tonight, but yeah, there, there is more I can go over. Like, once I start setting up nginx and postgres and the funny little things that you have to do sometimes like uh postgres at one time used a lot of system v memory but now with more recent versions of postgres you don't have to worry about that so you you had to make sure that you had to make your shared memory big enough and some people consider it considered it a whole because all the shared memory was shared amongst the jails and so that one postgres instance could access the shared memory of another Postgres instance, if it really wanted to, but that that that's gone now. I believe that's no longer capable. That's no longer possible. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, it's an interesting idea too to have maybe you know like a goal focused thing, or you know, here's how here's how you would start. These are what yeah. you need to think about to accomplish yeah. this end result. Um, I always found that I learned the most when. Hey, listen! I want to do this. I want to do this. I want. To, how do I, How do I wind up doing this? What's the best way to do it? As opposed to, I'd like to learn more about this. Yeah, right. It's like okay. Well, I read a couple chapters from a book, but I didn't really play with the idea. And yeah, it makes it yep. really hard to actually internalize things. Yeah. Okay. It's a lot easier when you have a personal goal yes, that you're up for. Exactly. 
Well, if you have a personal goal, that brings us to the last sponsor this evening. Those are our friends over at DigitalOcean. Maybe you really want to play with jails, right? You're like, ooh, jails sound great. Or, you know, you're not ready to play with jails yet, but you do need a new, you know, throwaway VM, a new system to host your web server, something to run Nginx, to run Bacula. Look no farther than DigitalOcean. Head on over to DigitalOcean.com. There, you'll find a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easiest way to spin up a brand new cloud server in under 55 seconds. Yeah, no waiting, no games. Just sign up. It's really easy. Just a couple button clicks on their beautiful website. Then, if you use our secret, super secret promo code, SNAPOcean. Yeah, SNAPOcean. That'll get you a $10 credit. And you just wait. I haven't had the best part. The best part, prices start at only $5 a month. With that, you get 512 MB of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a whopping terabyte of transfer. And this isn't like second class transfer, paltry transfer. No, they've got 40 gigabit E right into their awesome KVM virtualizers. They they live and breathe this Linux stuff, FreeBSD, this is, this is what they do. This is what they're dedicated to do. And to make it simple, easy, to go along with that, they have a first-rate API. They use it to build their awesome site. They use it to build apps. The community uses it to build all kinds of extensions, add-ons, tools. I mean, heck, we use it here to start and stop the show. It's super useful. As evidence of this, you've, I've just one of my favorite things about DigitalOcean is how, how connected they are to the community how much energy they've put into building, you know, making DigitalOcean a great place for you to, you know, to build your next project, whether you need it in New York or San Francisco or Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Frankfurt. They've got data centers where you need them in great locations with great peering. Plus, they've been introducing a ton of new enterprise-grade features, things like load balancing, things like attachable block storage, all SSD. Yeah, that's right. And their latest addition, monitoring, right? So, now, you don't have to rely. Maybe you're coming from a big, big box cloud provider. You didn't like it. You didn't feel like you were, you know, you were, it wasn't intuitive. It wasn't simple. DigitalOcean changes that, but has all the features that you know that you need. They're ready to be your partner. So head on over, digitalocean.com. Our promo code is SNAPOcean. That lets DigitalOcean know that you appreciate them sponsoring our program. And then, hey, Go, go play with DigitalOcean Droplet, start your next project, and then write back to us, give us some feedback, and we'll share about We'll talk about it right here on the program. Thank you, DigitalOcean. And that brings us to the final segment of the show. That's right, it's this week's Roundup, the section of the show we reserve to highlight some stories we didn't have time to cover in, you know, a Dan deep dive, but we still think they're interesting, and we'd like to point them as, you know, Homework for the show. So, what have you prepared as homework this week for our wonderful audience? Well, last week we talked about the Dallas's emergency sirens that were um, blasted through. Yes, not not just not just one big blast, but several blasts over about an hour and a half or something. Uh, Might have been more, but basically they figured out how they did it. Oh, interesting! it, It was over a radio signal. Um, basically, it's they seem to think it was a classic replay attack, and a, a replay attack is where you um, record the signal as it goes by, and then play it back again later when you want to do exactly the same thing. 
And that's not possible nowadays with most security things because of tokens they put in it and they're only one use and if they see it again they say oh no i'm not i'm not talking to you with this i I don't know who you are that's not you go away so apparently uh there is a test uh, a little while before this and someone just recorded the signals that went over the air and then decided to play it back and that's all happened so no one broke into the computer system it was basically a radio issue, not a computer issue. Oh, it was a radio issue. Um, and it goes in. There's a nice little map of how many sirens this is. And when you look at it, that's a lot of sirens. This woke up a lot of people. I would be surprised if anyone in the metro area of Dallas slept through this. Yeah, right. If you, li- if you live in Dallas and you did not hear the sirens and you were there, please let me know because – yeah, look at that map. That's crazy. That's a that's a lot of. I mean, I guess you want that kind of you know coverage so that yeah. you have a good warning system. But still, yeah. I think the primary use is hurricanes. Yes. Okay. So, um, tornadoes. Sorry. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. So yeah, uh, apparently there you can buy some of these devices. Um, I read something here about default credentials. You can download a lot of the manuals and the software. You know. You can download software and stuff like that, but that shouldn't be a problem. They should be somehow protected from this, and apparently it's not very secure. Yes. It seems like another one of those, you know, it's just taking so long for us to figure out that we have to design with security in mind all the time, even when it's like, a you know, should be relatively difficult for the layperson to interact with maybe shouldn't even be considered a target or wouldn't be in the past but now it's like well none of those are good reasons it doesn't really apply and we should just be designing with this right from the start and the thing to keep in note is if they can do this to make it work can they do it to make it not work yeah what else can you accomplish with the you know with these signals, yeah. or can you yeah can you jam the the network or otherwise interfere with it to prevent yep. legitimate notifications? That's a real concern. Yep, I'd be worried. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so on to our next roundup item this week. Malware reaches the Play Store as Google wages a war against the bank bot Trojan. What's the bank yeah. bank uh, bot Trojan? So. It goes back to January 13th when the source code of an unnamed Android banking Trojan was leaked online. Basically, this Trojan was used very successfully for a little while. And then someone took that source code, created a new banking Trojan known as BankBot, which by the end of the month had already been used to target the users of Russian banks. However, BankBot has the ability to avoid Google's security scans. And we're going to leave it at that because Uh, you should go and read about this because basically it gets by the security scans and Google is intervening and taking down the apps, but they don't know. Right. I mean, if you can evade the scans, then you have to, you have to wait for uh, user reports or other, other means. The, The app store is something called the bouncer and the bouncer doesn't notice bank bot. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Go check that out. That's fascinating. Yeah, so basically, oh, look, here's a new app. Let's download it. Oh, it's got malware in it, but nobody knows until your bank account is empty. Oh, God, that's horrible. Yikes. Yes. Sometimes the Play Store really feels like the Wild West. I mean, Google's Google's working on it, and I mean, you know, that's part of the 
Android platform advantage is having this very wide platform of software. But from a security perspective, you know, it really does. I can see why iOS, you know, and Apple have been so protective and curating of their software library, especially when you're, you know, the phone is a place where a lot of, you know, lay people interact with a computer in a very, you know, everyday way. So it becomes even more paramount. Yep. All right. So up next, this is a fascinating story. Prisoners built two PCs from parts, hid them in the ceiling, and then connected them to the state's network and did some cyber shenanigans. Yep. I love this. This is very clever, and I'm very impressed. Um, how they managed to hide it, though, is would make a great movie. Like You've seen Shawshank Redemption, I know. Yes. I don't think there's any male over the age of 20 that has not seen Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> I think that's probably true. So the the tenacity of being, being able to hide this and get away with it is pretty impressive. Um, go through and read it. Uh, obviously, they're not keeping track of MAC addresses on their network. Um, they may have been able to notice that, but I'm pretty sure that the IT department is not highly staffed. They're more worried about physical security than net security, I would presume. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's not, you know, that's not what the training included. It's not the threat vectors that they deal with every day. <sighs> Interesting. And I suppose, you know, there's a, the, there's a lot of incentive there for people who, you know, maybe have a lot of time on their hands, are highly motivated to be able to have free access to the outside world. Well, the ironic thing is the computers were cobbled together from spare parts, which prisoners had collected from a program used to rehabilitate prisoners by getting them to break down old PCs into component parts for recycling. So they had everything they needed. They had everything they needed. Interesting. Okay, so in that same vein, sometimes you don't have everything you needed or everything you thought that you had. That brings us to an app pick that I think is kind of interesting. It's called Historian. Your segues are really good. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Yeah, I really like this because um, basically it uses our our favorite file, uh, our favorite file open, SQLite, and basically, uh, I didn't follow what. OS, oh, okay, so this is directly aimed at Mac OS. I didn't get that until just now, but yeah, I do like this, and I'm tempted to install it on my MacBook because basically. Every command that you issue winds up going into an SQLite database, and you can search it later. So nothing ever gets deleted. Traditionally, bash history rolls over. Yes. Um, You say, keep 1,000. Once you hit 1,000, number one drops off. I wonder how it handles delete, though. Can you go in and delete something? That's something I would be interested in. Yes. You ever wind up putting something in history you didn't want in history? Absolutely. Like a password? (laughs) Yes. I had to change my password the other day because I put it in 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 logs that wound up. Oh being, no! Oh yeah, got shipped off somewhere. Change my password. <sighs> that's terrible news. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's one of the first things I always find myself changing on a on a new server. Or otherwise, like, okay, let's let's just have more history and let's add timestamps to the history. You know, like there's like a few base settings. Do you ever use yeah. the? Uh, I think Bash has a common one for. It. If you put two spaces in front of a command, it will alight it from the history. 
I never tried that, yeah. but I think I've heard of that before. Upsides and downsides, but I know something some people use. Mm. Well, you'll have audience. You'll have to try that. I think that brings us to the end of this week's program. Do you have anything else you'd like to add or uh, instructions for the audience? No, keep keep providing feedback because yes, it's that awesome. often determines what we do in the next show or close. Yeah, if you want to hear about it, let us know. Um, that's that's the best way, and we know what you know. What you guys want to hear, what we want to hear, and we kind of bring them together. We will be doing more jail stuff over the next few weeks Excellent. if I get a chance to work on it. Awesome. All right. Well, this has been episode 315 of the TechSnap program. If you'd like to see more, head on over to the Jupiter Broadcasting page. That's jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find the calendar, the back pages, the archive that has last, you know, the last TechSnap crew that has this show. That has my other show, Linux Unplugged, Linux Action Show, while it still exists, and a whole plethora of other excellent programs. Please go there. There's also jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact there you can send us feedback let us know what you liked what you didn't like what you'd like to see more of and we also like to hear about your projects nice software that you're using that we would like to know about and can share with the audience and pretty much anything else uh if you want to hear more from me at west pain on the twitter dan is techsnap underscore dan this is the techsnap program and we'll see you next week